The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked, no matter what your body size or your life circumstances. This is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello, it's Feel Good Naked Radio, and I am your host, Laura Redman, and this is the beginning of Season 3 of this wonderful program. Um, I am very proud of this. This is my love project, as I call it, and each season gets a little more exciting for me because I'm out in the world looking for people that inspire me, and I'm picky. Um, And I like working with the idea of embodiment, whatever that may mean for you listening. I believe it's a spiritual, physical, and mental process, and it's always changing, and it's always evolving. And I'm always looking for these leaders in the world who are examples to me of what I believe embodiment looks like, sounds like, feels like. And today, I am over the moon. I have got Lauren Weedman on my show. Many of you know exactly who she is. Um, I'll introduce her formally in just a second, but I want to say that I had the great honor to watch her newest show here in Portland, Oregon. It's called Lauren Weedman Doesn't Live Here Anymore, and it took my breath away. Um, It spoke to me on all these different levels. So let me introduce Lauren Weedman formally, if you don't know who she is. She's an American actress, writer, and comedian, best known for her regular role on the HBO television series Looking. She is also known for her roles in films such as Date Night and The Five-Year Engagement, and for appearing as a guest star on various series such as Hung, New Girl, and Two Broke Girls. Her most recent films include The Little Hours and Wilson. She was also a correspondent on The Daily Show. Weedman has written and performed several one-woman shows, including Homecoming, Bust, The People's Republic of Portland, and currently the show I refer to, Lauren Weedman Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She's the author of two books of comedic essays, A Woman Trapped in a Woman's Body, Tales from a Life of Cringe, and Misfortune, Fresh Perspectives on Having It All from Someone Who Is Not Okay. Lauren Weedman, welcome. Thank you. My gosh. <laughs> that's a hell of a bio, girl. That's some big stuff. Well, just go, it's, it, I, I guess I was, yeah, I guess so. I mean, not that I'm not proud of it, I guess. But I was like, my God, I would think that I, I was like, why don't I have any money if I've been working? No, I was kidding. It's not about that. I understand that. I don't mean to start on such a shallow note. No. Not about that. Yeah. 
So Portland loves you. I, I have to say one of the coolest things that has come to my attention having studied a lot of your work is this love affair that Portland, Oregon has with you. And this is not a city that's easy to seduce. No, they're not. I, I, I've, someone else told me that recently, and I'm, I, that's, I didn't know that. I don't think of it as being, I mean, I love Portland so much, but I also know that people let me know exactly how they feel about me here. And it's never just a, it's very complicated. You know, it's, it's sort of like, I liked your first show. The second show I was offended four times, and this show needs a little work, but I support you as a female. Like, it's always very, <laughs> people are very clear about where they're, um, how they feel about me. But yeah, I think it's a good it's a good city for, for getting deep with stuff, that's for sure. Yeah, but it's a hard city to break into because as well as being very opinionated, I have found Portland, and I moved here in 1998, and I always found it sort of, it's hard to break its shell because those who have been here will often let you know they're a four-time Oregonian or a three-time Oregonian, and there's such an identity that people have here about their Oregonian pride and status that anyone from outside of that line is not quite in until they get in and you're in you've broken it so what is Portland about for you what what what, why do you like it here and and what brought you here originally well like so many of my relationships it started with well they liked me first and that's why I like like because they came to me um I was doing the show bus which was about my like volunteering in the LA County Jail and I was touring it and then I um, I came here and I did a performance of it in a venue that was like a funeral home. It was like a converted funeral home and music space, which already I love. Which is to me is like so Portland and so perfect. <laughs> so right. And so I did it there. And then the Portland Center Stage folks came to see it and then asked me to um, uh, come do a show here. And I thought that the for me the the run of the show was was rough in the sense that. Um, it, people weren't, uh, it was tough. I thought the audiences were a bit tougher than normal. They weren't immediately just like, you know, thanks for doing it. Like they weren't just blindly supportive of the fact I was, you know, just up there walking around and talking a lot on stage. They were, um, they asked a lot and I was appreciative of that, but they were also took the subject matter. Like they wouldn't laugh at a lot of the jokes that they did in other cities just simply because the subject matter was jails that people were very, you know, it's not a, uh, immediately it was sort of a somber vibe for the show. I thought or that they took it, that the audience approached it very somberly. But then as I, um, oh, I don't know, I, I met, as I started having more feedback with people and meeting people who sent me emails and stuff and responded, I realized how deeply thoughtful people were about stuff and how much they care about things. And they care so much that um, it's, it's, a, it's a whole different, uh, I think one reason that Portland also likes me is that I, I roll over and I show my, I mean, I'm, I'm the dog that rolls over and shows its belly. What's that? Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't come in here. Like I, I'm, as my, one of my jokes is like, I hated me long before you ever hated me. Like I've been doing <laughs> it for 48 years. Um, I'm struggling with that. And so I don't come in with this, like, I'm going to tell you guys something. I always come in as exactly who I am as an outsider. I'm just sort of taking this in, trying to um, find myself here. And, and I've gone through a lot of big life things when I've been here doing different shows. Um, and all these things doesn't really connect to the fact I was talking about how bust, how the audience is just sort of, I, I guess my point was, I wasn't sure that, that Portland, um, did like me all that much. And I felt like a lot of, I felt like the women did, but then I got a lot of comments after shows where people are like, well, I loved it. My husband didn't care for it, but you know, <laughs> I had that time. 
Um, but that's but then I after a while I didn't I was like that's fine with me I was like just give yeah. them an all PM and let them sit through the matinee and or sleep through the matinee and you know as long as uh, they other people were coming the ladies are coming I was happy. Well, you bring up a great point too about the masculine feminine vibe of any place, but more so one of the reasons I feel you are the epitome of an embodied woman is that you are so present and I there's an alignment that I feel when I'm around you that is both internal and external. You live out loud with your truth. You you bring a comedic flavor to it, but there's also a sorrow that I get in touch with through that filter. And I think a lot of men are intimidated by that sort of presence and strength in a woman, at least in the Northwest. In the Northeast, it's a lot less obvious. But I find here in the Northwest, there is a a strength that a woman might embody that is not necessarily comfortable for men. Yeah, I don't, I, I know exactly what you're saying because um, I experience it and I'm, uh, I, but I don't understand why in the North, like I, I, I think of like all the, you know, the women that I know, I, I was in Seattle for a long time. That's where I sort of started out in a way, um, like about six years. And I always thought that, I mean, all the women I met there were, you know, basically like, I've cut down five trees today. I've started my own business and I just birthed a child and I'm going to take care of my cattle. Like everybody's doing so much and so capable. And the women are fit. I mean, I used to just blindly say that my, 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 not blindly, but it's such a sweeping statement where I'm like, but my favorite women in the world were in the Northwest, were in Portland and Oregon and the people that they just, women just seem so, um, oh God, just strong and, 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 and very spiritual and all this, all this stuff that I, I loved it. I love the people and especially compared to where I live. Um, but yes, I don't know why there is a, um, why you'd think that that would be exactly what men would want here, that they, they'd be all, I don't know. Now I'm trying to get data. I'm, I'm thinking, like, how come I've had no success with men here? I know, it's, it's definitely different, and the women are the warriors in the Northwest. You're right. They all they they continue to blow my mind, and I've been here for so long, and I love the women, and my squad out here is just awesome. Um, but the male thing here still is tricky to me. I still don't quite get it, and that's okay. But I do notice that the empowerment of the female that we are referring to is not always what makes a man comfortable. And I agree, they should say like, God, I'm so lucky to be in the presence of these women. Aren't I lucky? But instead, they generally can feel a little bit, um, maybe it's a, maybe they feel a little demasculated or just a little, they shrink. They shrink a little bit in the presence of that empowerment. I don't know. I've just noted it. I'm so used to that vibe, yeah. you know, yeah. and it, it used to, that I'm, I, uh, if anything, I'll think if, if I'm, cause I am, you know, I've been single a lot, but and I'm, when I've been dating, I always think if somebody does like me, they, they must not, I'm like, well, he must be a little, um, over medicated or something or kind of dumbed <laughs> down in some way, because once he comes to, he'll realize how frightening and all this, um, hmm. not because I'm actually frightening, but you know what I mean? Like that, that I'll, I'll think I'll, I'm so used to being, re- um, Men sort of like, well, you're a handful or people coming. I had, I used to have guys come to me after the show just to let me know. Like I remember at one point when I was doing the jail show, this guy like chased me down on the sidewalk. He's like, just so you know, I wouldn't want to be married to you. And I was like, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let my parents know what a letdown um, yeah. for, for just letting me know how, or how intense it is. And I also think 
on stage how the fact that I let myself be so ugly and I mean ugly in the sense of you know what I mean like it's I'm not looking I'm not trying to maintain a certain uh, I'm not looking to um, get laid on stage or something and I and, and I'm not I'm not thinking about my parents my physical parents and so much I'm just in the story and how that seems to be even uh, disturbing for uh, for some men like to see a woman who's willing just to like bah you know Interesting. Yeah. Well, this character you're in now, this Lauren Weedman doesn't live here anymore. I, I want to talk about this show because it is so incredible. How many characters do you actually embody in the performance? I was trying to do a count on my own, but but I don't, give me nine hundred and seventy-five. <laughs> I don't know because so many. I got asked that on a radio interview, and I'm like, oh god, I hate that this beeping is going on. Sorry about that. It's annoying. Um, I don't hear it. You don't hear it? Okay, good. Mm. <laughs> you don't hear the chanting and the beeping and the baby crying? Okay, good. It's in my head. Um, no, I, I, I don't know how many. Maybe, well, I don't know, 10 or 11 or whatever. I do little characters quickly, too. I don't, you know. Um, but, but that, the, the character thing is, I do maybe four main ones, I think, that I go to. Because I do uh, myself and my alter ego, Tammy Lisa. And I won't go through the whole list. But, um, yeah, I do, I do characters, multiple characters. And like do, you, do you feel like as you're doing this show now, you're you're towards the end of the run, do the characters, if they, they have to evolve within you as you perform them, um, but then when you start to head towards the end of a run, do you feel a melancholy as to the goodbye of the characters because okay. they've become such a part of you? Well, the whole thing is, like, I'm anxious to um, be back with my kid and be back in my own um, home. But the idea of not being in that world of the play is a bummer. And that's always, and plus it was a new show or it's a new work. And so I was, I've been working on it and thinking about it and developing it because I had the commission for the last couple of years. And so I kind of always, once I get a commission, whatever happens, it's like, like Twyla Tharp talks about when she creates a work that she has like a box and she sort of, you know, puts the title of the work on it. And then whatever comes up that inspires her or hits her, and she's not even sure if she's going to end up using it in the show or not or whatever. She just keeps putting stuff in a box, right? Keeps putting it in there. And then when she goes to start actually rehearsing, she opens up the box and takes out all the the um, the, the things that have struck her over, you know, the time period that she knew about working on the show. Well, I've done that with this piece where I had so much stuff, like songs and moments and things that affected me and people. And, blah, and, and to leave that... Is going to be sad for sure, and and I immediately try to find other bookings so I can keep doing it. But um, I don't know. I don't like to repeat shows that much either. So um, yeah, I'll be sad. I'll be sad not to do Lucinda Williams because um, mm. a lot of and the characters all change because I start them like the show that you saw on opening night. A lot of the things that were there are were almost just like an outline version of the show that still needed to go about four steps deeper and. Uh, like, for instance, I knew I wanted Lucinda Williams as a character, and I knew I wanted her to be more than where I had her on opening. And now, as the show has gone on, she's become a lot more. Like, she's the one who's, like, letting me know, um, trying to wake me up to what's happening in my life and trying to point things out to me. And she's sort of the, the guide um, in the show that she wasn't initially. So, yeah, they all develop. And was Lucinda the one that said in the quote I read that she's never been comfortable a day in her life? Oh, my God, yes. I just, it's <laughs> so good. Uh, yeah. that, Wait, she said it when I heard on a radio interview, and she said it with such a 
And the guy interviewing her was so like went through such a long litany of all, all you know this, of all the wonderful things that she has accomplished. And you know he's like, by now surely you're comfortable in your own skin. And she was just like, no, my friend, like I've never been comfortable a day in my life. And I thought that is that is exactly that speaks to me. <laughs> it's such an interesting quote that I have not been able to leave myself. Like I've really been going deep into that quote and asking myself, where is comfort? Like, is comfort something that you can get in touch with? Or the yeah. greatest comfort is knowing you'll never really be comfortable. I mean, it's it's a really big one. And so that's Lucinda's quote. I loved yeah, that that's quote. So, that's so good, too, what you said about, because I'm, I'm always, when I'm, um, whenever I, t- I have some friends uh, that will say to me, um, will express how like how hard it is for them to go to parties or they'll be like oh I feel so awkward when I'm first I'm thinking one person in particular has like social anxiety and is sort of you know complaining like oh I don't want to um like I don't want to play this this I don't want to play charades because I always look so stupid and I'm like welcome to the human condition like we're all feeling this way like you, if yeah. you just accept that we're all so it's all so awkward it's all just such a <laughs> awkward and messy and once you're just like that's how it goes there is something so that's what I feel like about almost being 50. That's that one of those joys of that where you're like, yep, that's just the, the rule. I mean, I assume that's for everybody. But. but I think living that out loud is my point about embodiment is that if we can all get clear that none of us are not crazy and and we all suffer and we're all uncomfortable, it automatically lessens the anxiety attached to those pressures. Yes, it's such a... And it seems like such a, a, a rule of the, the of life that it's odd that um, that people don't believe it or don't use it. You know, it feels like such a, like, dirt, like, that's that's the main thing, if we could all just know that. But it's weird how they fight that or how, um, yeah. I can't, I'm just like, I have this list of people in my head where I'm like, how come so-and-so doesn't do that? And how come just <laughs> judgment? I'm just kidding. It's so so- I want to ask when you look back on your journey, because your resume is ex- very, very impressive. And and right now in your life, as you mentioned this midpoint, and one of the greatest things that I was, I was screaming when I read your interview in the program, when you referred to the middle passage from Misery to Meaning in Midlife by James Hollis, that book has been my Bible. When I was going through a pre-menopause and then hit menopause and made 50 uh, by the, just just barely made it to 50 through the tsunami in my life. That book is the book that completely anchored my insanity. And when I saw you refer to that book, I thought, nobody knows this book. I can't believe you've been sitting on this and didn't come <laughs> sooner because this is, you're the first person that I've had this with because I felt the exact same way. All the hair on my back is standing up. All the the fur patch way in the middle of my back. (laughs) Yay. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Well, and one of the things about that book that really struck me was the notion of individuation at a time when we're so partnered, right? Like usually midlife is people who are married, have children, or are in some sort of a an agreement that is beyond the individual. And then there is this just breaking apart of who am I, who, who am I in this role, and who am I in this group of people that are my, quote, family or child, children, partner. And this book, The Middle Passage, gave language to 
the reality of the individuation process. So how would you describe what individuation means to you as a mother and as an individual? I don't know if I could be as articulate as I'd want to be on that because I don't know that I've, I'm, I'm working towards it still. You know what I mean? Like I, um, I mean, I feel like I, I, I have to be, I, I'm on my own. Like I'm, I'm divorced and uh, it's been what, like three years, I guess, when everything kind of fell apart. And I, I, I always have only myself to kind of grasp onto, but I realized I was looking for somebody to save me. I was constantly looking for some situation or something just to get me out of how I was feeling and what was going on. And a lot of it was through, through men or thinking that I was going to, you know, date somebody who's going to save me or that my marriage would save me, all these things. Um, and to have all of that fall apart was pretty, um, was kind of perfect for me because I, because I wouldn't have been able to, you know, save myself. It sounds so, well, it's true though. If that, if that all hadn't happened. So, if anything, I guess that I, mean, I feel like I'm hemming and hawing because I haven't fully done it. Where I'm like, I still have to remind myself that I can, you know, go to bed at night without like having to text, you know, somebody that I'm dating or text them, you know, like check in or have somebody know how I'm doing, you know, how to have a sort of grasp on what I want. And, and through my work, I, I get through solo theater and I found this like this art form that serves me so well because I am the person I have to answer to always. Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't, I can't blame anybody. Like I can, but usually it just looks bad and it's not true and people are on to me. But I, when I, I can't come off stage and be like, man, those other actors really threw me or like, you know, so-and-so is drinking again. Like I, it's all me. I can't blame the playwright. Mm-hmm. I can't blame anything. Um, I have to, it's fully on me. And that has been uh, the thing I get the most, uh, I don't know, I guess individuation from or strength for, you know, like this feeling myself, you know, and not being... That's what it means, right? <laughs> well, that's that's how I'm 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 loving the way you're describing it because one of the most profound aspects of watching you up on that stage is you make it look easy and it is so difficult what you're up there doing. And to me, the individuation that you bring to your performance is unbelievably impressive because you make it look easy you don't you don't feel like there's a person up there that's not sure how to do this or is struggling but you're bringing context that's so intense and making it look easy yeah well I like doing it so much and and it is a world listen and for me I feel like it's almost like I'm it's I used to I'm always finding something to be a little like you know embarrassed by or think like oh god I'm so full of it and that that when I'm, it's easy for me because I'm up there by myself and I don't have to actually, you know, interact with anybody. Like it's a lot, it, it used to be when I was on TV shows or something, I had to have a harder time dealing with what was going on around me. And I, and I thought that it was just that I was too sensitive, you know, as we all like to think, where I'm like, I'm too affected by everything. And if, you know, if I see one person, you know, who, uh, if there's one drama going on, which there's always a drama, I would be completely thrown by it and couldn't do my work. Or I thought that like, I'm like, I think that person's mad at me or I will like, I was just so in everybody's biz. And when I get on stage and I'm by myself, it's just a world where I don't, I'm not running into any of that. And I can just keep going and running in my own head and energy and that kind of stuff. And I, I like it. So it's, and, and it, but I'm by myself. It's like, it's a challenge sometimes to be like, I tried to put the band, there's a band in the show. I tried to have them so they were actually visible on stage and I couldn't handle it because <laughs> mm-hmm. when I would look over, 
during some like preview or not previews this is way back I was workshopping it I would see the band and I, I, I would see one look on someone's face and I and I'd think oh my god he is he hates it up here like or he is so tired of this scene or oh or he's so and I was just projecting my own deal with however the show was going on them and I would get you know it would throw me and so I had to then put them behind a scrim and then instead I have a band that's like a um I I play all the band members now like I just you know instead of having them on stage I I, I uh, act them out or I do you know so I yeah that's um this but this misery to meaning book though can I say can I say something or can I may I, may I have permission to speak <laughs> yeah so say it all man say it all yeah thank you this is so freeing um no but I uh when I when I got the book what it felt like to me is that nobody was having a good conversation about the menopause thing or about or premenopause or just aging, every time I tried to bring it up with how I was feeling, people were so patronizing. I thought we were like, well, you don't look it. Girl, you still got it. And I was like, I don't, this is not, or they immediately thought that it was just a vanity thing of just me, you know, feeling like I looked old or that I, and I'm like, it's not just that it's a part of it, but it's like, it's, I just wanted some kind of deeper conversation about it and nobody wants to have it or they were having it with their partners you know what I mean? Like I felt like, or people are having it, you know, late at night with their husbands or their wives sitting in bed, maybe talking about, you know, uh, depression or death or maybe, or with their th- whatever. I just felt like I didn't get to get in there and kind of look at the whole thing as a ritual as well, like another passage. And that was why, oh, that book. This book, oh. I, I'm holding it in my hands. And for anyone listening, um, so that we can make sure you get your hands on it as well, it's called The Middle Passage. And on the back of the book, it says, which is right what Lauren is referring to, why do so many of us go through this disruption in their middle years? And why do we consider it a crisis? The Middle Passage presents us with an opportunity to re-examine our lives and to ask, who am I apart from my history and the roles I've played? It is an occasion for redefining and reorienting the personality, a necessary rite of passage between the extended adolescence of the first adulthood and our inevitable appointment with old age and mortality. And that, that is what is the deeper conversation that is so freeing to have without the focus on appearance and hot flashes and, oh my God, are you taking hormones? It is about the deeper self, the sense of self, the purpose of self, and the revision that is now when you are in midlife, which is ultimately hopeful, even though I love how the author, who is James Hollis, refers to, you know, the the passage from now into the next chapter can be rough, but then there is relief in knowing that that's rough, that this is the time to deal with some of these bigger questions. Yes, instead of like, this is the time for just house um, household renovations. Like, I felt yeah. like, <laughs> well, I live in Santa Monica and the conversations like with, you know, when I'm trying to, I guess I kind of pour it out to people though in inappropriate, in the classic overshare kind of way and being single on top of it where I'm, you know, whoever I'm standing next to is who I'll be going through whatever I'm going through with, you know, I'm like, sadly for you, we're in line at the grocery store. So you're going to hear them. But I'm, it, I'm constantly trying to find some people to, uh, to, to talk about all this stuff with and I never could. And so that's why I think this, and, and you know, I didn't know until I read the book about how, um, uh, like, I like the Buddhist thing of, like, I try to, like, be present, and I try to do all that kind of stuff, but then I also like to have a mountain to climb a bit. I like to know that there's something I'm climbing up, instead of, like, well, now I guess I just wait to die. Like, <laughs> like yeah. 
like what happens now? Like what else can fall apart? Like career can fall apart and money and, and um, the idea I had of, you know, what love was going to look like and what a family was going to look like. Everything is sort of shifting. And now what do I do besides deeply breathe? Um, and so I loved the idea of, because it mentions Dante's Inferno. Mm-hmm. And I had, and I had, you know, I read that maybe in high school, skimmed, let's say. And the first line of the of Dante's Inferno is about in the middle of, Light, or I think it was, yeah, middle of my life lost in a dark forest, something like that. And the fact that that was about, like, that even, that blew my mind, too. I was like, oh, my God, man. It was, like, even written about, like, the whole thing was, yeah. It was a life-changing book for me. It's why the, the play is based on it. I mean, I it's the book, when I read the book is when I started fully getting into how, what I wanted from the play. And I wanted it to be sort of a union examination of midlife stuff. And so, yeah. Well, that just was so thrilling for me to find out after seeing the play because I read it in the program and I went, no way. There's no way that she knows about this book. (laughs) So I want to talk about, you just said breathe. And when you said breathe, I thought you said grieve. And it's interesting because I work a lot with individuals. And I think that one of the greatest gifts I can offer is the understanding of grieving and how grief is a part of midlife even when things aren't upside down and in your story, they went fully upside down. And in my story, they went fully upside down. And a lot of women in particular that I counsel, they, there is a denial of the grief process, which is inevitably part of living longer and going through midlife is grieving. So it was interesting. You said breathe. And I thought you said grieve. Um, yeah, I could have said grief, because that's 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 what I maybe you were listening to my were you listening to my spirit instead of my <laughs> Well, uh, I wanna I, yeah. I wanna go to grief because you've been public obviously about your story and um, your story's rough. It's really, 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 really rough. It's it's every woman's nightmare, it's every mother's nightmare. And you're moving through it. You're using art to, I think, evolve as you must go through it. But give us some tools as to how you work with the grief of the story regarding your ex-husband and the father of your child, because that's tough. Right. Well, it was, so initially the, um, well, not initially. That's not the way I wanted to start the sentence. What happened was that I, uh, so I was uh, married and then um, with this the father of my um, kid for about 12 years was I was we were together and for the last three years he was having an affair with our babysitter um, it's super and, and she was very young when it started and and uh, they're still together and this was now it's been I guess six years total and so and she you know and he's in his 50s and you know she's in her 20s and it's very it's very you know classic cliche things but in the beginning um, when it first happened I it was so you know, everybody was like, well, how angry I must be. And I thought that I was showing my anger. And I was like, I am, I've had a chance to be angry. And I've, um, but at the same time, I was so much wanting to, God, it's not, I can't believe in hearing myself say it now that I didn't realize how um, much I was still suppressing it because I'm with my kid and I have to be okay for him. Like, even, even when I first found out, like, when I sort of, you know, when I, you know, uh, saw the evidence of it, when I, you know, nabbed him, I I couldn't, like, I'd, I'd had these fantasies of the, if I ever walked in, I mean, I didn't walk in on them, but I, you know, I found, like, a video, and, and I always thought if I found evidence of something, I spent my whole life almost picturing 
what I would do. Like I would go outside and I'd shoot out some tires, right? Like I'd just start punching, hitting, and you know, and whatever, you know, get a baseball bat and crush, you know, crush his car, or whatever. But as soon as I saw, as soon as it all went down, you know, my my kid was sitting in the in the other room watching TV. And so, you know, and I felt so nauseous too. All I could really do was like, I couldn't even like push over a chair. You know what I mean? It's like I had no strength and it was so much more, it was so much more depressing and sad that it made me angry. It was just so devastating in the sense of like, oh my God, I really, this whole time that I've been trying to make something work and that I've been thinking I'm having heart to hearts, this person has had a whole other life I didn't know about for so many years. Um, so that, in the beginning, I thought, I'm never going to get over this, and I will just be, I'm never going to believe in, in um, I'll never believe in another person, because um, words mean nothing, and um, unless that person's me, um, that person's probably going to be a problem, and, uh, and even being left with me seemed like a drag, but, um, but I did, it's been, it's been a while now, right, it's been three years of, of going through uh, all sorts of different I think in trying to deny telling the story too for a while, like I didn't really want to go down and which I say in the show, right? That I didn't want to go down in history as being the woman whose, you know, husband had the affair um, with the babysitter. And I do write about my life a lot. And, but I didn't want to be talking about that because of my kid. But then the more I avoided it, um, I felt like it didn't, it wasn't working. Like it kept sneaking up on me. Uh, And so I felt like I had to just tell it and be out with it and, and even if other people, well, I don't know, it just sounded so tabloidy at first to be talking about it. But that's not what my work is about. It's about much, you know, about trying to go through it and, and go through the, there's been so many stages. I don't know how to like really sum it up. Um, yeah, it changes, doesn't it, over time? Yes, and it hits me differently. Like I, I have moments where I will still, um, I, I, will, I will feel so uh upset about the fact how much I chose not to see things that I just so much wanted um, a family and so much wanted this idea of like, I'm doing the right thing. I am doing the right thing. And you could not, I mean, if, if, and if he said I was doing anything wrong, I would correct it within the hour. You know, <laughs> like I was completely just like, check, 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 got it all covered. And the only thing I, but not in this, but not listening to my instinct at all um, because of just the blind need of, of wanting something to be true. And that blows my mind because truth is such a main, a big deal in my life. You know, it's what I go for in my work and in my day-to-day life. It's what I care about. And yet when it came to that, I couldn't see it. Um, and I guess because you, you went through, so I don't know what you went through. Well, I, I, it's similar in that my beloved was engaged in an entirely uh, life that I uh, knew nothing about until I found out about it. And it was, it was such a sense of groundlessness for me because I had given over my life to this human, which is the first mistake. And, um, and the, the whole family card was really important to me. It was the most important thing to me. And I was devout in that role and in that life. And then it literally was like finding out that this person was not at all who I believed or the illusion of what I believed was who he was. And everything blew up into smithereens and everything went away as I knew it. And the loss was everything. And I just had to walk through the horror of it and, uh, I'm way better now, and I'm, you know, several years out as well. It changes constantly. I can be hit 
by the grief and then I can be hit by the freedom and the joy that I'm no longer with someone that yeah. really had no interest in my heart or my well-being. And again, the words, you know, it's funny you say that because for me, words now are meaningless. Like, I don't want to hear you love me. I don't. Please don't say it. Live it. Do it. Be it. But don't say it because the words have no value for me anymore. Yeah. Um and that's been freeing too in a weird way because I, I have no, I really work hard on not having illusion anymore. Yeah, that's, I do too, but I'm not, I still fail. But this thing you said about, I just remember every time I'd come home after I was, um, after we split up, I'd come into the apartment and I'd be like, oh my God, he's still not here. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I was able, like the apartment, like I've been complaining about this little rent controlled apartment that um, uh, we lived in. For the whole time we were together, and it like doesn't have good. There's no uh, sunlight, and we're 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 squished between two other buildings, and it's just uh, it's a small space, a small sunless dark space. And then as soon as um as soon as he moved out, and I repainted it, and his furniture was gone, I put it was. I'm like, this is a lovely apartment, and being able to sort of control or, or get you know be in the space I wanted it to be, and all that kind of stuff. There's all these perks, but you know the biggest thing that I'm that I've always been happy about through it is that because the same time that I went through that, I had a friend um, unexpectedly die of a heart attack and I was mm-hmm. uh, there. Like I was, was, you know, there through um, uh, his death in the emergency room and going through helping his family. And so I was, which was a huge deal to like lose a peer. Um, and then also go, and I had this moment of like, well, then the moon is going to explode. Like what's next? <laughs> oh, yeah. on nothing. And I was, alone in it like to I and I always feel like there's this awful thing where I'll be like why am I alone and I think how lucky I am or I'm glad for it in the sense of like these evenings where you know like after my friend died and all of our friends were together and supporting each other and people were all going out and having these um you know late night let's meet at the bar and talk about um my friend Chris and and be there for each other and I couldn't go out because um I had my kit and I was alone with uh Leo at the time and I just separated from my husband and I had even asked him if he would come help me so I could go, like he knew what had happened and he didn't, he didn't want to do it. And I didn't know about the affair yet. I just thought we were splitting. I didn't know why. And so the, there are these evenings where I'm like, are you kidding me that this man who I've been so, who my life has been with, wouldn't, who knows how things are awful. You know, he wouldn't want to be or help me during this time. Like, does he hate me? What did I do? And I had these such awful dark, you know, nights where it's just like, what has happened? Who who, who, who must I be to deserve this? Like, I truly had, like, nobody could convince me to. People were like, oh, it's not about you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that. I'm like, yes, it is. Like, I would act like I got that. But in another level, it's like, I absolutely believe that he, that, that there's no way that I couldn't be completely hateable for him to do this. Like, I must have done something. But that is something I've gotten over, that I truly get. That um, I see what I did wrong, for sure. But also, I know that it's not... It wasn't me, and that was hard to re- to recover from. You know. I get, yeah. Well, and I and I wonder if some of the deeper meaning of this kind of pain and loneliness and heartbreak and heartache is to give you an understanding of who you are individually, back to individuation, that would never have been the information you could have without that tsunami. Yes. Yes, because I wouldn't have done it to myself. I don't know how to do that. I didn't know how to, I wasn't good at, I mean, I wasn't meditating. I didn't go away to try to like hear the voice in my, you know, like I didn't do that. I was sort of attached to him and all that, you know, uh, 
the life around me. But the other thing too that like when I'm teaching or performing or whatever, I feel this. I feel a um, fearlessness hmm. that uh, when it comes to emotional things, it, I, I bring it on. Like there's not a lot of emotional. Um, I can sit through all sorts of um, life situations, and they don't. I don't feel scared. Like I feel things, but I'm not scared about walking through them. And uh, that I thought was the superpower I got at the end of it where, cause especially when I'm teaching and people are like, they're working on their personal stories and people are like, Oh, I don't know if you want to hear mine. And I'm like, bring it on sister. I'm an oak tree. Like <laughs> I'm blown it over. And if anything, and uh, that I can have emotions about it. And like, in the sense of like, you know, cry about things and be affected by things. It's not just like, you know, I've seen it all. I'm not like a hardened, like army sergeant as low as my voice may sound. Um, I'm, you know, it's, I do love, that like that whole thing of how these things happen that open your heart more and more and the empathy of it all oh that's good 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 stuff that's such good stuff and that also developed my understanding of freedom like now where love 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 may have been my greatest hope and want now it's freedom and the freedom that you just described being able to stay in any story or situation comfortably within yourself no matter how dark no matter how destructive no matter how familiar it may be I know the gift it's given me in my own freedom self but also with other people You're teaching and I'm counseling people and and I'm teaching movement and everything I offer this world has gone to a whole different place in me and then my offering is way richer. And I think that's how I would describe freedom. It feels so integrated. Yes. Yeah, that's true. That's good. Write that down. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I want to know what your um, spiritual practices are. Do you have routines and and do you do things on a daily basis or regularly that tune that intuition you referred to and give that spiritual soul self uh, a loving kind of elixir? Um, Well, um, uh, (laughs) no, not really. In fact, I vacillate. Between, um, like, this is, this just jumped to mind. Like, I was thinking about, I had this babysitter. I still have babysitters. Um, uh, and she's wonderful. Her name is Davy Blue. She was raised by a jazz, jazz mom, single mom. Uh-huh. And uh, Davy Blue was, uh, I was getting ready to go to an audition. And, and uh, I was telling her, like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not going to get this because it's a network thing and network doesn't like blah, blah, blah. And I was going off about all the reasons it wasn't going to happen. And, Davy Blue's like, sit down right now, like just sit down. And she's trying to get me to sit on the floor cross-legged. She goes, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to see yourself and you're, you are getting those auditions. And I'm like, no, I'm like, Davy Blue, I don't have time for this. Like I have my audition. And she goes, listen, um, just so you know, I've seen your bookshelves. So I know you are into this, but if you want to do this right now, I understand. <laughs> that kind of sums it up is that I will be going off to spin class or you know, or I'm, you know, drinking bourbon, or I'm still like living the same kind of life I've always lived, where I go, you know, sometimes it's about just like watching TV and, you know, and drinking wine. And other times, it's about, uh, I just do a lot of reading. And I I do wake up in the morning, and I just started doing this again, what I used to do in my 20s, which was um, to get my head in the right space, where I have to, I've started to do mantras again, because of, of feeling like, I don't, how, how much I can still go down just dark roads in my head and that I've got to stop doing that, especially, you know, knowing what I know or who I am. Like I have to keep my, my head in this place of like, okay, 
I can, I, I'd be my own cheerleader. And I, and I, I think that especially my ex-husband was that voice for me in my head. Like, so I could bash on myself or I could be hard on myself, but my looks or my talent, what I was accomplishing. And he was the one who was always going, no, 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 you're not that you're, and I let him be that voice. Um, and so now I've got to, which is kind of humbling, you know, to still have to be doing that, to have to be, you know, to be like, yeah. I'm going to accomplish this. I'm okay. Like I am a beautiful woman. Like I have to still do that. Uh, to, and I, and you know, if I don't do that to start the day, I'm kind of screwed. And before I go on stage, I always do, um, I read a lot of, I'm a big Pema Chodron. I don't know if you know her. Oh she, yeah. Um, a big fan of her. And I read that and I get hits from the Hollis book, from the Misery to Meaning. I'm always surrounded by books. I'm a big fan of picking up a book and reading a, you know, a paragraph and letting it feed me and then uh, going from there. But beyond that, and then dance. I do a lot of physical stuff, dancing around. Oh, yeah. God, your body is so incredible to watch in movement. I mean, you are very physically embodied. And the Pima Chodron book, When Things Fall Apart, was right there with the... Uh, same, the, the Middle Passage, those yeah. two books were sort of my Bibles at the time that my tsunami hit. And in my space where I w- work and live, my books are all around me. They're my friends. Like, I just, I'm so grateful for them. And, you know, you mentioned the mantra work and Louise Hay. Um, <laughs> I, I love her stuff. And she just put out a little mailer the other day that was about waking up in the morning and saying, I love you, and and you're saying it to yourself. You know, it's not the human being that might or might not be lying next to you, um, but just saying to yourself, I love you, and I love my life, and welcoming the day with that kind of mantra, and it is so powerful. It is. It sounds schmutzy, but it's so powerful. It is, and I think that I fought it because a part of my shtick is also like I'm a piece of shit I don't like myself like I'm I've always uh you know in comedy and being cynical and that kind of stuff but then um as a uh, mother and a human being things have started to you know and it's things have fallen apart um realizing that, that there was this core of um of truly not loving myself and that this was why over and over again I was with I mean but it, it, it's bizarre that the 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 men that I've I've been with that are nothing like the men that I date will be nothing like my friends, like they're not the uh, meaning that they can be so much harsher towards me and I've been in sort of like you know mildly abusive like relationships and have let these things happen to me that I can't imagine uh, that I I can't believe that I would let happen and it all is stemming from this sort of core like not not. Yeah, not loving myself and and not letting myself do that anymore. Like in my 20s, I completely was, I loved Louise Hay. I was all, I was living in Amsterdam and I lived in New Age bookstores. They were just called like New Age bookstores. I could not, that was like oxygen. And then I completely rejected it just because, I mean, it's just, just for the hip factor. You know, I was just like, this is stupid. I'm done with that. Like I'll do some meditating. And then I'm right back to the, the same things where I'm just like, you know, I'm good enough. Like, like I, well, good enough, but I love myself and I have to say that to my, yeah. Well, I wonder when we're in our 20s, because I I do love that some of these books now resonate so differently, just as a movie might that I watched five years ago versus now or 10 years ago. But what I was saying about love and the words love, I can't 
tolerate someone else saying it to me because I don't I don't trust that anymore. Right. But I have learned, as you just said, to say it to myself and to own it. And I realize I never did that. I never did that until the last five years of my life. And yet I thought I had because I read the book when I was younger, but I didn't get it. I didn't really get it. And so the self-love is ongoing and it continues to unfold. And that mantra, saying it to myself, has been so helpful and healing versus needing to hear it from another or wanting to say it to another. It's I want to say it to me. Yeah, and that's a big one. Yeah, and I wonder. It's that's why when I was the title, the one of the books that um, uh, that I wrote, I can't even remember the title. It's so freaking long. Um, about like stories from a woman is not okay or whatever. Um, and I used to always think that the world was divided up into these two groups: the people that had this core belief that they were okay, just okay, like like you know, like no matter what, they're all right. And there's uh, then there's those of us that just have this core feeling of just, I'm not okay. Like the whole thing of Lucinda Williams not being, you know, not being comfortable. And I was so, I had so taken that identity on of just like, I'll be the, I'm the not okay. And that's what art is suffering. And I'm, I take my suffering and I turn it, you know, I had, I definitely was invested in that. But then, um, um, then I started to realize I needed to, um, I want to get through some things and I want to survive <laughs> and I want to, and when I got, de- and I got depressed, like this last year was more depressed than I'd, I'd been before. And it, that needing to get back to this, um, this idea, yeah, of, of, of loving myself or being able to say that to myself and going like, and realizing that I don't have that voice in me or I don't have that, that um, I wasn't really raised with that, you know, with that, that whatever, that core feeling of like, you are okay, no matter what happens. You know, I was sort of raised with the opposite. Just like, you get your weight down and you're okay. You know, like mm-hmm. I was super rewarded for all that kind of stuff. Weight Watchers points and whatnot. Oh, God, you and I have had such similar journeys. I love it. It's so exciting to talk to you because that conditional love of if you lose the pounds or I was brought to Weight Watchers in sixth grade and oh. It was so humiliating because I I went to the meetings with my mother. I ended up with this 10-pound loss pen. And when I went to school, she made – I had to wear it on my shirt. And I, <laughs> I wasn't rebellious enough then to say, no way. But my sixth-grade teacher, Mrs. Begay, she was like – you look so good. Have you lost weight? And I said, um, yeah. And she was like, oh, I, I want to know, what have you been doing? And, uh, you know, Weight Watchers. And she joined the meetings, Mrs. Begay, my teacher. And it was horrific to be in a Weight Watchers meeting with my sixth grade teacher and my mother. And I just grew so humiliated over that process. But it sure did teach me about conditional love and the crap that we're taught that is the opposite of self-love. Yeah, no, I, I went to that. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's exactly because my whole, I, I have a whole thing about how I was the youngest member of Weight Watchers at the, where I was <laughs> in about seventh grade. And how I was the only kid, and um, and they were constantly like talking about how when you're packing your kids' lunch for school, and it's one winky <laughs> for them and two for you know. And I was like, I'm that kid, and I was, and I just gained weight and gained weight because it just I was, uh, uh yeah, I just because I was always sneaking food and, and everything. But yeah, we're like the same person except I have an N. I know. <laughs> I love it, and I'm sensing that you're also an empath. Would you call yourself an empath? 
I guess so. I mean, yeah, because to a point where it's sometimes debilitating, but yes. I yes, am. exactly. It, it will put you uh, under the covers for a long time. I think one of the, the, the Weight Watchers referral you made in your show that I loved was they always show you the foods that you shouldn't eat and that's all you want to eat because you've been looking at these pictures and these these things about don't eat this. Well, of course, that's going to be exactly what you want. It's, it's so counterintuitive. Tell me this, who inspires you? Where do you get your inspiration these days? You know, it changes all the time. Like I don't have like a, it, it's... Um, it, it's it usually is whatever's going on in my life will be something that's sudden like for a while it was this book like um, I know I keep coming back to it but it really was a it was hugely inspiring it was like the conversation I wanted to be having at that time and uh, and then for a long time it was um, the music of Patty Griffin mm. um, I thought she was some of her songs were just like life changing and uh and and then there was there was a, a period where I was uh, way into Fellini, like that was really inspiring for me, and I would get you know hits from 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 watching that and and um, listening to um, like the other day when I was listening to Kendrick Lamar and mm. watched some of his. So it's really it changes day to day. I don't have a, a constant of of um, like right now what I'm feeling inspired by is there's this store in Portland and called. Um, Scraps? Do you know about this place? I walked by it two days ago. Okay, this store is like it is. It's like a, they recycle um, trash, basically not just trash, but you know, people's. It's like trash because it's like they're, <laughs> but they divide it up by um, like there'll be a whole bin of um, of uh, I don't know, like medicine bottles or something that they've. Well, and it all looks so good because it's been organized. It's like an OCD, uh, you know, just a dream come true. They had these. Ziploc baggies of photos, like just random photos that were for $1 and you get a Ziploc bag and I don't know who put them together, but they're amazing. Like I bought two of them. So I, you know, two bucks and then going through all these photos, these random photos that are, you know, of like, you know, oh God, a a, a woman sitting in the the forest by herself. It looks like it's in 1992 and it, with her like upside down kind of 80s glasses on and 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 whatever just all these weird so that kind of stuff has been you know jazzing me you know today and it it just it all i don't have a it always shifts uh, well putting honesty and i like honest moments and i like stories and i and yeah i don't know i don't have a, a certain go to you are so marvelous what 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 can someone do to learn or to see if they're in portland uh, tell us how many more shows are left and if there are tickets available. And then is there hope that this show might go on the road? I don't know about the going on the road thing. That is a new, I don't focus on that as much only because of um, my kid, but I, I certainly hope to do the show again. I'm just not sure when or where, um, but um, it's going to be in Portland. I'm still performing until April 30th is the last show. Um, there At this point, there's still tickets left. It's a big theater. It's like 600 seats, I think. Um, and uh, but the, But they have been... I'm, the the ticket sales were picking up, but I don't think anything sold out. Uh, so they have another couple of weeks uh, to, to, yeah, to come see it if you're in Portland. Yeah, if anyone's listening and can get here to see it, it's so worth it. It's a reason to take a road trip here. And I just want to thank you, Lauren Weedman, for giving me this generous amount of time. I know you must be tired after these shows, and you're using your beautiful voice to talk to me, and it's meant the world to me. So thank you very, very much. 
well, you've just sucked the life out of me. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was lovely. Thank you. I was glad uh, to Yeah. Yeah. You, you are the uh, epitome of my tagline, which is that you complete you. So thank you for that. Oh, that made me, that made all the hair on my back stand up again. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get that waxed. <laughs> thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. You too. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin. 